My name is Priyansh. I'm Tayeba. And I'm Umer. You're tuning into Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco socialist podcast based in Toronto. This episode is being created in collaboration with Jamhur, which is a Toronto based media platform that covers life and politics in South Asia. And life and politics in South Asia is the theme of our discussion in this episode. Okay, so maybe to start off with, we can sort of define what South Asia is. Uh, South Asia is, you can think of it in, in mul- multiple ways. So if you're thinking geographically or cartographically, it has always been an amorphous you know, category. When you speak of South Asia, you, it's very difficult to define where it starts and where it begins. But I think it's loosely understood as the Indian subcontinent. Um, there are always certain accusations to the fact that India, especially North India, and, you know, issues around Pakistan are essentially privileged in the South Asian discourse. But also, if you look at South Asia as a as an area of study, uh, it you know, emerges in the post-World War II context. And it was it definitely developed from the United States in the sense that many of the universities realized that the U.S. was in this position where it could drive home its imperial advantage without the knowledge that the British Empire had really uh, cultivated or nurtured for itself. And to understand different parts of the world, it creates this category of South Asia, which is a contentious category. But now you see, I mean, South Asia has much relevance. To give you an example, there is a South Asian university in New Delhi, even though South Asian departments haven't really, uh, you know, existed within universities in India. So it, it's definitely a, you know, a term that has much relevance. But uh, what does South Asia mean still remains open to contention. But formally, it includes countries of Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, and the Maldives, which together form the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation, or SARC. Um, So traditionally, that's what it's understood as. But yeah, as Priyansh said, there can be lots of meanings of the word itself. And Afghanistan is, uh, interestingly, I mean, Afghanistan has been, for some, has been considered part of South Asia politically. But to give you an example, you know, say from the world of sport, Afghanistan was part of the SAF, which is a a soccer championship. And only recently it actually migrated to play in the Central Asian Championships. So how, where Afghanistan sees itself is, has actually been uh, pretty much, its position has been fluid uh, and it, it changes, it has changed over time. And you see, you know, other regional formations come up. Uh, I mean, I spoke of how it is seen politically in the United States. Uh, there is obviously this regional formation of AFPAC, which is talked about. So Afghanistan is, is place is is not uh, definitely fixed with how we would think of South Asia, even if we were thinking in terms of, uh, you know, cartographically or geographically. Yeah. AFPAC itself was something that was, it became a creation really in the Obama era, right? And it was met with a lot of criticism at that time as well, because Pakistan does not want to see itself lumped with Afghanistan. So AFPAC itself was quite a contentious thing. Yeah, but for the Obama administration, it was just to talk about the two neighboring countries that they were bombing simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there is also like this drive to lump Pakistan into the Middle East as well. Like when you talk about the Middle East, they often include Pakistan in there, which is also something that Pakistanis don't care for much. Yeah, people do that. 
and it's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I'm also hesitant to include Afghans in South Asia, just out of respect for them. <laughs> <laughs> but then, I mean, there is that. That's again, it's a political thing. It's a it's a complicated uh, historical thing as well, right? Because mm. there was for a long time a demand to create a wider Pashtunistan from populations that are based in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And then same with, you know, the territory of Balochistan in Pakistan. You know, they consider themselves a part of this wider Baloch community that is present in Iran as well as Afghanistan. So again, where do you, where do you draw the boundaries? That's difficult, uh, especially, you know, even when we think of continents themselves, all of these understandings are so loose and, and really fixed. And it also pretty much depends on, you know, what you're talking about. Nobody is really able to say delineate you know where Europe ends and where Asia begins and this is that has been another you know contentious question politically as well so I guess it's probably in the nature of region making or how we think of regions that you know these understandings will probably remain loose Mm -hmm. and I mean not to just keep talking about geography here but another country that could be a candidate for inclusion into South Asia is Burma I mean I feel like they're closer than Afghanistan, you know, in just the cultural, civilizational kind of way. Uh, if that's not too offensive a thing to, to say. <laughs> they were part of the British Empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the reason why it's important to sort of define South Asia is because in the North American context, I don't know how it is for you guys, but whenever I talk to people and the term South Asia is used, there is a very easy slippage from using South Asia to to instead using Southeast Asia because people are much more comfortable with that term. And every time it happens, and it has happened more times than I can count, I never correct the person I'm speaking to because I don't know if they're just, it's like a, you know, it's, it's a linguistic slippage or if they're just, they don't know that South Asia is a thing, that instead they just know that Southeast Asia is a thing. But South Asia is very different from Southeast Asia. It's not anywhere near Vietnam or Cambodia or the Philippines. Yeah, not at all. And it also, again, within Asia, I guess those you know demarcations are, are really important because the, the way term Asian you know, connotates two different things because Asian could mean somebody from the continent, but also it means somebody from the Far East. It, so it's, I guess, in, in that sense, it, it is a useful term, as you're saying, to be able to, you know, carve out an identity for oneself. Yeah, I don't think of myself as Asian, though. That's South Asian people in Britain, right? They yeah. they call themselves Asians. Yeah, yeah. But here, if you say Asian, that's yeah. East Asian. It means yeah, something completely else. So I guess, yeah, it is spatially specific as well, uh, you know, in which part of the world you're in. But uh, interestingly enough, I guess, if you were to speak to someone in India or in Pakistan, do they think of themselves as South Asians? Probably not. No? Do they? I don't know. I would think that they do. Oh, yeah. okay. right? I don't know. Speaking as a Pakistani, they, yeah. I think the South Asian identity is something that they claim. But is Burma part of Southeast Asia or South Asia? I think that Buddhism sort of tips them over the edge (laughs) (laughs) into Southeast Asia. I don't know. But Sri Lanka's put it. That's true. But it's too far from Southeast Asia. This is why uh, the region is is such a contentious issue. Where do you draw the lines? (laughs) 
But okay, so moving beyond, I guess, drawing lines. So part of the reason we wanted to have this discussion is because I'm sure that a lot of our audience is hearing about recent developments in South Asia, particularly in India. There's a lot of news coming out about this guy named Modi. There's lots being said. And given that North Americans, like especially Anglophone North Americans, we're not very cosmopolitan. We don't know anything about the rest of the world. (laughs) I I guess the point uh, of today's discussion would be for people like me, uh, I I will take on the identity of the Anglophone North American here, to, to learn a little bit about the historical, political, cultural context of these recent developments that are taking place. And then, of course, we can also talk about those developments. But maybe that's that's a good place to start, is, is the ri- rise of the far right in India. Well, uh, the interesting thing about it is that essentially there is now very little to separate between what you'd say the far right and the right within Indian politics. And, and that has been... I mean, we were speaking of categories earlier themselves, and, and there's always been this contention about the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is the party that the Prime Minister Narendra Modi represents. Its ideological basis, you know, has always come from the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, the RSS, which is a Hindu nationalist organization. It identifies itself as a cultural organization, although that, I mean, that term is in itself contentious. But it derives its heft, uh, its ideological heft and its ideas really come from this belief in Hindu supremacy. And that's been, so it's now an organization which is very close to its centennial anniversary. Uh, In 2025, it will complete 100 years. So it, it has existed, you know, even before partition happened and so India and Pakistan and what what is now known as Bangladesh uh, got independence but the question about the RSS is that and archival historical records prove this that it took much of its inspiration from what was happening in the late 1920s and 30s in uh, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy there are documented meetings between the founding members of the RSS and those who were part of the fascist regime in Italy KB Hedgevar, who was one of the founding members of the RSS, he went and met Mussolini in person. Sorry, what, what was his name? KB Hedgevar. Okay. And he, I mean, he and, and and his followers were really, you know, they were much impressed with what they saw in um, 30s Italy, which should all you know, give us a moment to pause and ponder to, and to understand what's ha- been happening in India. But obviously, after the independence, the RSS, you know, then loses its legitimacy, primarily because it was a member of the RSS, Nathuram Godse, who assassinated uh, M.K. Gandhi. And, you know, for, for a while, they, they obviously struggled to make any breakthroughs on the ground or even electorally. But now is their moment. And some of these things can be explained by the electoral breakthroughs that the... Bharatiya Janta Party's earlier iteration called the Jansangh made in the 70s. Uh, and that's really its entry into electoral politics. So, so Narendra Modi is a member of the same organization. He is a proud member of the RSS. He swears by its values. I mean, we're speaking of, you know, of, of how people in North America understand what's happening in Modi, uh, what's happening with Modi and India. Modi wasn't allowed to enter U.S. on a visa because he is accused of carrying out a state-sponsored genocide in the state of Gujarat in 2002. 
he's only been able to you know he was granted a visa only after he became the prime minister of india in 2014 and ever since he's been the prime minister you find that all dissidents students in the media free media has come under attack there's been a sp- you know a series of violent incidents which have been carried out by the state but really the, the driving ambition behind this movement is to see india as a hindu majority nation and not as a secular sovereign socialist republic which was enshrined in the constitution of india so some of the recent protests that we see now are actually in support of or rather in defense of the constitutional values which now now seen as under threat in india the the most recent flashpoint obviously has been the change in the basis of the citizenship so there's been a constitutional amendment which has changed the basis of citizenship which which really actually threatens to you know make nearly 200 million to render 200 million indian citizens stateless which is obviously would be a calamity to say the least uh, so so that's what's you know brought people out on the streets and that's what essentially explains the reports that we've seen lately but what i'm you know also trying to think is we're speaking of of say the rise of the far right but taiba what would you say do you see any parallels with what's happening in india in the you know maybe in the pakistani context yeah um of course i think a lot of strands that you are mentioning from india can also be seen in pakistan especially when you start talking about restricting space in society for any kind of dissenting voices against the sort of majoritarian view of pakistan i think the way that i see it is that a lot of historical tensions that have been there since pakistan's birth in 1947 are now coming to a head and so for example when pakistan was formed uh, it was formed out of this desire for for muslims to have a separate homeland because they saw themselves as under threat from hindu dominance uh, after the british left the country um and that demand slowly coalesced into this demand for a separate state and the state was then created out of a very rushed process and maybe we can get into that as we go on but when the state was formed there was then this entire effort for much of its history to create a muslim nationalism or a nationalism based out of their shared identity as muslims across the country and that involved erasing a lot of regional differences a lot of nationalist aspirations or a lot of nationalist elements as well as other kinds of differences between people and welding the entire country under this banner of islam and of course that had to be done through coercion and consent and so the elites uh, or the ruling class at the center started to gain uh, a lot of dominance and at this by the center i mean the heart of the country in many senses the economic uh, generator of the country which is the province of punjab the people who were ruling punjab started to gain dominance over other nationalities um, within pakistan or sorry other nations so pakistan. wait a minute there's a punjab i thought punjab was in india Yes, so during partition, uh this is one of the legacies of partition um that when there was a demand for muslim nationalism, the demand was based out of areas that had muslim majorities and areas that were had hindu majorities. Um and the demand was that areas which had muslim majorities would constitute a separate region either within the federation of India or a separate state as the demand grew on. And so when the british partitioned India, they actually drew a line right in the middle of Punjab separating east and west Punjab. and east punjab went to india and west punjab went to pakistan which actually resulted in the bloodshed uh, of partition as people migrated across these different borders right so 
we did an episode on the podcast on Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, right. who's from Punjab. But he's from the Indian side. Yes. And you guys are saying that there's another side. Yes. Yeah. There is a West, West Punjab, which is now Pakistani Punjab. Right. Um, That's the side I'm from, actually. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, one interesting piece of trivia there is that there are more Pakistani Punjabis than there are Indian Punjabis. There are more Muslim Punjabis than there are Sikh or Hindu Punjabis. Uh, which is also interesting from the standpoint of identity creation because most Muslim and Pakistani Punjabis don't really care that much for their Punjabi identity. Whereas if you talk to like uh, someone who's Sikh, for them, their Sikh identity is, is you know, inherently in interwoven with their Punjabi identity. Yeah, I think that's a huge reflection of the fact that the Muslim nationalism project in Pakistan was so centered in Punjab that it actually erased the regional identity of Punjab in favor of this broader Pakistani nationalist identity. And so, you know, Punjab, a lot of Punjabi households would prefer not to speak Punjabi at home uh, mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. they get more established or upwardly mobile, and they would rather speak uh, Urdu, uh, mm -hmm. which is part of this Pakistani nationalist project of favoring Urdu over regional languages, favoring national, uh, other national and cultural symbols over regional symbols. And I think uh, just going back to my point to complete that point is to uh, is the fact that a lot of movements, a lot of political political mobilizations that are happening now in the country are actively resisting this idea of this wider Pakistani nationalism and asserting their own identity and demanding rights based on those identities. But just, I mean, just to, in defense of my people, if I may, so Punjabis make up about half of the population of Pakistan today, is that, or a bit less than half? Yeah. And they are the dominant ethnic group. Punjab ends up being the economic engine of the country, large part because of historical reasons and because of, obviously, the kind of favor that it has gained or retained since independence. But prior to independence, of course, the Muslim-majority areas of India didn't really want independence the heartland or the, the center of Muslim separatism was in the Muslim minority areas in central India, in, in Uttar Pradesh or UP, which, as we were, we were saying, or as Priyanshi were saying before we started recording, is, is today where much of the Hindu nationalist movement is centered. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the, the situation in UP currently is, as some are saying, is actually a repetition of what people saw in Gujarat when Narendra Modi was a chief minister of that state. So now in UP, the chief minister is a man by the name of Ajay Singh Bisht, who who actually goes by the name of Yogi, Yogi Ayatenath. And he's, you know, taken on this identity to present himself as a Hindu savior. And you find that uh, in, in the state of UP, uh, multiple reports of state-sponsored violence on, which is essentially a pogrom being carried out against Muslims. And, and, and in recent uh, weeks, we've, we've you know seen an escalation in those attacks uh, on Muslims in the state of uh, Uttar Pradesh. And Uttar Pradesh is an interesting state uh, because it is obviously India's most populous state. Uh, and you've find that there are many diverse identities at play, linguistic uh, or religious uh, predominantly. But on the question of religion itself, it has been almost uh, the preoccupation of the BJP and the Bharati Janata Party because it, it sees 
I mean, electorally, first of all, it it it's re- it sends 80 MPs to the Indian legislature out of 550. So it is also electorally very important. And, you know, the city of Ayodhya is in the state of UP, where we obviously had the destruction of, of Babri Masjid in, in 1992. Be- behind that movement were, you know, essentially prominent leaders of the BJP and the RSS. So there are cultural uh, reasons you know, essentially ideas of cultural supremacy, which guide BJP's preoccupation with UP. And you see this continuing to this day. Uh, but also just to, you know, pick up the point about how we understand the Punjabi identity. And, and, and Tayyaba obviously was speaking in a Pakistani context. But, uh, you know, the example that you're giving, Umair, about Sikhs and and how they how it is interviewed with the question of being Punjabi, you, you just have to look at mainstream Hindi cinema, otherwise known as Bollywood cinema, in which you find that really the equation of Punjabi and Sikh is is never really complicated. It's almost understood that a Punjabi figure is Sikh without really trying to... Un- I, 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 you might see this, actually, the question of being Punjabi in maybe in some recent films, which are centered in and around Delhi, uh, because Delhi obviously has a significant uh, you know, Punjabi population. But but again, you know, this memory of the partition is almost, you know, sort of brushed, brushed aside. People don't want to talk about it as much. Uh, I went to a school in New Delhi where many of my classmates were Punjabi, but uh, there would never really be any... Sorry problem. about that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was also a school which was uh, run by the RS Samaj, which has strong links to the RSS. So there, oh. uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, many challenges there, but uh, but you know the conversations about partition, especially even in Indian textbooks of history, partition isn't really talked about much as a you know as a seismic e- event at all, uh, or you know as something that lives on. It's, it's almost a, an inevitability. Yeah, like it, it had to happen based on how you know because India Hindus and Muslims were of course always two different nations. Yeah, and and this reality is is not complicated at all. And obviously, you know, when people talk about something that is, uh, you know, problematic in itself, something as Islamic culture, uh, which without problematizing it at all, or which without complicating that, it's, you know, only the question of the Sufis would come up, but uh, uh, which is obviously an easy uh, thing to talk about. But uh, you wouldn't find in schools, particularly uh, any question of, of how partition is remembered. I mean, just to draw in parallel with uh, from another South Asian context, how 71 is remembered in Bangladesh is very different. How it's taught in schools and uh, it's you know front and center, that topic. But that's not the case in Indian schools about how 47 is remembered. And 71 is, is remembered as, you know, as an India-Pakistan war, but not really as a war for, say, Bangladeshi independence, to give you an example. Right. So just to for clarification, 1971 is the year that Bangladesh gained independence. Yes, uh, from Pakistan. Yeah, because initially it was... This is kind of complicated. Is it that complicated? It is quite complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, initially in 1947, it just so happened that the Muslim-majority areas of British India happened to be uh, on the very east and very western ends of the subcontinent. And so those areas became part of the country of Pakistan. So there was a Western wing and an Eastern wing. And eventually the Eastern wing broke off in a very bloody Yeah, with the su- support of the Indian military, obviously. Yeah. 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 Uh, but coming back to your point about 
the demand for Pakistan not being very strongly rooted in the majority areas. I think East Pakistan, which now became Bangladesh, would be an exception there. But speaking about West Pakistan, um, yes, it wasn't very strongly rooted. Um, like it wasn't a huge desire for the people there. Um, even if, if you see the last elections that were held within British India, the Muslim League, which was the largest Muslim Muslim party, it actually did not win in two of the provinces that later became Pakistan. And these elections were held a year before, approximately a year before Pakistan was formed. And so in many ways, the desire for Pakistan was actually driven by the quote unquote Muslim elites from the from the heartland of India. And those elites were based in the United uh, in Uttar Pradesh or UP, um, where, in fact, the Congress one. And so it was these elites that started to feel really in, in very material terms when, you know, the cow, cow protection um, orders, for example, were passed because, you know, cow, the cow is a sacred um, symbol in Hinduism, or when Hindi was gaining a lot of dominance in that province um, after the Congress won. Uh, and it was these elites that started to feel the anxiety of when the British leave, what will become of us? And so in many ways, the demand for Pakistan or a separate region was driven by these people. And, you know, as a very famous poet in in Urdu remarked, or John Elia, uh, he said, Pakistan, uh, Aligarh ke londo ki thi, which is Aligarh is a university in uh, for the Muslim elites. And he said, you know, it was a sort of prank that was played on us by these elites that that these Muslim elites from Aligarh. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, as a comparative for us here to look at, is really interesting. Uh, this minority nationalism that didn't really have a base among the minority that it was, you know, supposed to be fighting for or on behalf of. Yeah, it was really an elite-driven project. And even to the extent that it had a base, it had a base in those areas where, you know, it it couldn't have gained that separatist victory because you can't, you can't, you know, in the middle of India, you can't create a separate country for the Muslim minority that was there. So, yeah, I mean, just, just in terms of like thinking about minority nationalisms more generally. So for me personally, whenever I hear a demand for separatism, you know, and this is like not to offend anybody, but whether this is in, you know, Quebec or in what's been happening recently in, in Spain or Scotland, you name it. My first thought is like, wait, you guys want a partition? <laughs> like we tried that. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't lead to anything good. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's you no know, not to diminish the number of people who would turn out to these rallies, right? To Muslim League rallies towards the end, there were a lot of people and you no know, not everyone was elite and there was this certain aspiration for, you know, something that the Muslims would get protection from, you know, because they were anxious of this kind of what they began began to see as Hindu dominance because they, you know, there were more Hindus than them. So they did begin to see to get anxious. Um, at the same time, I think it's important to understand that this desire for protection and this desire for having some kind of space or self of or some right to self determination would not necessarily have translated into an independent state. It could also have translated into some kind of, you know, more protection within a federation. You know, I just didn't want to diminish the fact that there were people coming out to these rallies in huge numbers. It was wasn't just a trick. Yeah, and there were mobs going around. Yeah, people did give their lives to go over to the separate state. 
Yeah, and they gave other people's lives. Yeah. The young men who rallied together and murdered uh, people from the rival community. Um, yeah. It was also, yeah, I mean, you know, a well-found, well-founded anxiety, I should say. And in fact, now you see in the you know current uh, discourse around India, say in Muslim communities and also especially leaders who have you know who are involved in politics, you you find some of them saying uh, that you know whatever we were feeling in forty seven wasn't illegitimate. This is exactly what we feared would happen in India, and <laughs> right now it it's actually. Difficult to you know dispute that because in the, in the current moment those anxieties aren't just anxieties they're really existential fears now where you can lose your citizenship you are now um, you know much much likelier it's it's much likelier that you might actually be attacked by a mob and there have obviously been many r- reported incidents of mob lynching so, so some of the fears that had been raised about India around the time of independence that this would ha- that you know the country might collapse into an internecine warfare or or a civil war like situation it's not really a civil war at the moment but some of those fears aren't really I mean, don't seem as far-fetched as they might have, you know, seemed maybe a, a couple of decades ago, or so, or maybe three decades ago, and uh, it, it it points to into a direction of of uh, the failed promises of of nationhood because it was a very much. Uh, I mean, it, it was pre- probably that you know the definition of uh, aspirational nationhood. It, it aspired to many of the values of the modern nation states. It it wasn't only. A project of imitation, but it was also a creative project, uh, which we saw in India. And, and you know, many of those truths or assumptions that you had about Indian society have pretty much been flipped over, in especially in the last six years. But uh, it's obviously been a long time coming after the collapse of of Babri Masjid, which is which is the moment in which you know much of what is happening now, its origins are really traced to. And you have to say that. Uh, it, it, it's not going away anytime soon, especially since the BJP continues to enjoy a huge electoral majority. Well, yeah, we should talk about this Babri Masjid thing, which you've mentioned before as well. It's important. Um, but in terms of the point about the fears that the Muslim minority had pre-independence about being dominated by a Hindu majority, that those coming to fruition, I feel like the partition actually helped with that. Like the the fact of the existence of separate Muslim countries made it harder for the Muslims who stayed in India. And there are, of course, tens of millions of people who are Muslims in India. And so then the Hindu nationalists could undermine the secular uh, nationhood that the Indian National Congress was trying to build by saying, well, these Muslims that are here, why don't they just go to the neighboring countries, whether it's, you know, Pakistan or Bangladesh? And so I would therefore, I guess I would just say that that had the partition not taken place, perhaps these fears would not have been realized. Yeah, maybe. I mean, also the, the, the other thing about, you know, telling people to go to Pakistan has become such an import, uh, pretty powerful political statement that anybody, that it's no longer... Even in the uh, 
in the indian you know popular imagination it's no longer a question of even religion anymore if you're a dissident you're asked to go to pakistan if even if you you know let's say if you if you're not a dissident if you just put out a critical tweet or a facebook post uh, you're told to go to so pakistan it, it is considered the uh, as the other because obviously it, it's considered as you know as a, as a country for muslims but now it's especially in the last 6 7 years it's been transformed into a place where its connotation is not merely religious but also almost it stands against any political conception of uh, uh, anybody who stands against the political conception of india as a hindu state should just go to pakistan no matter you could be a hindu but you would still you should still go to pakistan and I, i think because uh, because you're sympathetic to because you, minorities because, or because something. you're sympathetic to minorities or because you or because you merely just don't support the government and i think the role of the state is is important to see here because essentially the state's direct involvement in people's lives has collapsed but it keeps that illusion alive and you you see this in how say you know the bjp operates or or you know how prime minister narendra modi communicates with indian citizens Uh, there is this idea that through his podcast which he conducts every sunday he has a podcast yeah it's called man ki baat you know he's speaking cool. from the heart yeah yeah, yeah he's so, so he's sharing his you know thoughts uh, apparently his deepest desires with the country every every saturday every sunday sorry and the idea is that he's actually ever present in everyone's lives some schools in fact in india now uh, that's the homework that the children have to do in schools they have to listen to it and then you know report on monday what the prime minister talked about so wow yeah. the that's, great leader that's very interesting um because the way you're say, i mean pakistani nationalism or or the conception of a dissident in in pakistan is then you know diametrically the opposite of what you're saying so anyone who's critical of the state in pakistan is automatically an agent of raw which is the intelligence agency in india So we often joke that you know raw is the biggest party in the country because anyone who anyone who talks against the state is automatically a functionary of raw. Uh, and so this you know this it's very interesting that the two countries then have formed their nationalisms in opposition to each other. Yeah but on different terms than religion which would have been maybe the case that of how it was understood in 47 yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I think you know Oman when you said partition almost um exaggerated those those fears i think it could also be seen the other way because when partition happened and when pakistan was created there was actually a greater number of muslims that were in india than in pakistan even after partition and so you could then you know you could then argue that more muslims because more muslims were present in india that almost defeated the the fact that muslims needed another country and then further when when bangladesh formed that was another sort of challenge to the idea that all muslims need a separate homeland and they will be happier with each other right the fact that this entire muslim country could not live together because of other reasons because you know the demand for bangladesh or the aspiration for bangladesh was rooted was rooted in linguistic reasons you know the bengalis were not agreeing with this project of urdu dominance or uh, this entire you know wider pakistani nationalism that was created that was based on islam um that was another challenge to this entire idea that muslims needed a separate homeland within within united india yeah and i i'm just i guess what i'm trying to also do is get something that's generalizable out of this to the extent that's possible and you know the idea that because one's culture 
or religion or ethnicity is slightly different from someone else, that therefore they need a separate political home can't inherently be seen as a progressive demand, right? You know, and so I think as socialists, despite the fact that we are concerned about the rights of minorities, we're in this difficult position, right? And this is where a lot of progressive left Muslims found themselves in the Indian or the pre-independence India is that they, you know, they were like, well, shit, we don't want a separate state, but we're being pushed, pushed out. And, and especially, uh, I guess, it's uh, whatever political stance you take is uh, pretty much dictated by that very moment. Like with the examples, you know, you, you had brought up of, say, Catalonia or, or, or say what's happening in Scotland. Those hi- histories, I mean, Catalonia has, is, is pretty much been, you know, has always seen itself as different, which uh, which I'm not very sure is, is the case, say, in, in the case of, of, the, of the partition that happened in 47, whether, you know, people, I mean, Catalan people don't actually have at no point, even before Franco, uh, they, they, they always saw themselves as a, as a separate, if not nation, but, you know, as a, as a separate group of people. But in, but in the uh, context of the 47 partition, I'm not really sure that was the case because people were really astounded. Oh, guess now we, but we live in two different countries now. So, yeah, I I guess it, it is hard, you know, I also uh, say speaking as socialist and, and, and with a commitment to internationalism particularly, it, it always will run into, it's almost by design when you live in a world divided by nation states that you will run into this problem of do you want, if, if you are committed to collapsing the project of the nation state, is that actually helped by an, an increase in the number of nation states themselves? Because most, most of the minority nationalisms are actually not merely speaking of their rights, but they're also seeing themselves as separate nation states at a point. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I mean, again, the demand is being is being put forward in under you know various identities. But at the end of the day, it was a demand for greater access to resources, greater you know material uh, control over your own sort of resources and so on. Right? Even for Bangladesh, uh, the demand came out in the form of the Bengali language, but it was rooted in the desire for equal participation in the country, and they felt that they were. East Pakistan was being sidelined by the elites that were located in West Pakistan, and that had a long history. Um, you know, the the country was relying on resources from East Pakistan, all the materials that East Pakistan was producing, but the wealth was all being transla- transitioned into West Pakistan. Um, and so it came out in the form of a linguistic demand, but it did have, you know, again, as socialists, we need to look at the material roots of that demand as well. Mm-hmm. Though even, I mean, the movement that led to a separate state in East Pakistan wasn't calling for a separate state. It was just calling for you know, greater autonomy, greater access to, to resources and respect for the Bengali language. And so, yeah, and even there, I mean, they it was just the, the inability of the Pakistani state elites to allow those demands to, to happen that led to that, that very gruesome second partition. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I guess, I mean, you guys are right. These are all sort of contingent things. One can't generalize so easily as I'm maybe trying to do. But I, just in the Catalonia case too, in all of these cases, look, all of these identities are constructed. 
they are uh, imagined, right? Um, that's not to say that they're fake. They have a real, very real power. Also, I guess, you know, looking at the current moment in India, it's uh, in- interesting that much of the protest or the demonstration is actually being cast in terms of how people actually see themselves as Indians. And, you know, speaking of, say, Toronto specifically, uh, there have been a few recent demonstrations here. And some of the people who've come out and who I had a chance to speak with during the protest, and I, you know, wanted to learn what were their motivations for turning out, they say that they don't recognize India as they used to, which is interesting to me because... These protests have also seen not not just of course in Toronto but but in India uh, of, of reading of the preamble uh, of the singing of the national anthem and they have become you know permanent fixtures no matter where the protest is taking place. So actually, the articulation of, of opposition uh, is being done in terms of of claiming Indian citizenship or of, or of claiming a, a certain nationhood. Because the anti-Modi voice is essentially trying to say that actually what being Indian means is a secular, you know, diverse republic and not a Hindu supremacist republic. But uh, the tension there is obviously and and why, say, Modi is so popular is that the Indian nationhood has also been constructed in terms of, of a Hindu citizen actually being above the rest. Of a, of a Hindu citizen enjoying privileges, uh, especially a Hindu upper caste citizen enjoying privileges, privileges which not the rest enjoy. So it's almost these competing visions of, of nationhood and, and both have certain legitimacy, but one has more legitimacy in, in this point, which is why Modi is popular uh, in the current moment. We're going to continue chatting about life and politics in South Asia and we'll make the next segment of our discussion available next week. While you're waiting for the next part of our discussion to be published, you can read about life and politics in South Asia by checking out Jamhur's coverage at jamhoor.org. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you again soon. 